0: So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman from Samaria, for a drink? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband, because you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he." This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I often tell the story of my best friend in high school, whose name was Jay. Jay died in a scuba diving accident In my junior year of high school, completely unchurched, Jay started trying out church in our sophomore year. After a year of trying out church, Jay told me, still a pagan, still an atheist, he told me words I will never forget. They changed me. What did he say to me? You'll have to wait till the end of the sermon to find out. How does God break through to people? How does God break through to people? I mean, it's a big question. Maybe today you're someone in this room that feels you need a breakthrough. You're struggling on the edge of faith. Or maybe you've got someone in your life that you think of immediately who you feel needs a breakthrough from God. How does God break through? To people. Now, there's so many texts and stories, and you could argue that the entire Bible is really one big story of how God breaks through to people. But this story from John 4, this, I think, is one of the greatest stories of God breaking through to somebody. You see, this woman at the well has a breakthrough. God breaks through to her in a powerful way. And as we look at it, we see three things in this text that Jesus does in this breakthrough moment. Jesus comes to her. He moves into the region she's at. He intentionally goes to her. Jesus comes to her for this breakthrough. But not only does he come to her, then Jesus convicts her. He convicts her of what's actually the problem in her life. It's not very comfortable, but he does it. So he comes to her, and then he convicts her, and then finally Jesus courts her. He courts her for marriage. Just wait and see. First of all, Jesus comes to her. You see, the story begins with Jesus' own initiative of going to Samaria. In chapter 4 of John's Gospel, if you're with me, verse 4, we read that he had to pass through Samaria. You see, he was going from Judea and heading for Galilee. And it says in verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. The difficulty is that's not completely true. There was an alternate route. It's a longer route that bypassed Samaria. It got you away from Samaria. Samaria was not safe for Jews to walk through. There could be robbers and bandits. And plus, you didn't really want to go through Samaria at all. The Samaritans were considered undefiled, unclean people. We have a hard time even today still believing that when we read the parable of the good Samaritan, what a shock that would have been to Jesus' Jewish hearers. You see, back in the time of the exile, you had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Israel at one time was united, but then it broke into two kingdoms. And the kingdom in the north, Samaria as its capital, when it got overrun by the Assyrians... We read what the Assyrians did to wreck their culture and wreck their religion. A king named Tiglath-Pileser III, who was the king of Assyria, by the way, we've named our dog that, no joke. You come to our house and just shout out, Tiglath-Pileser III, and the dog will come running. I mean, I just wanted the king of Assyria under my foot. It just felt right. My, my, my kids call him Tiggy, which sounds a lot better, but when he's you know, done something wrong, he's Tiglath-Pileser III. We named Tiglath-Pileser III um, this same king though, back in 2 Kings verse 17, we read what he did to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, the people of Samaria. That as he conquered them, in order to completely overrun them and make sure he retained his dominance and control, verse 28, we read that one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived back in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. All right, so the king brings back a Jewish priest. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they lived. Summed up in verse 33. So the people of Samaria, the Samaritans, feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they'd been carried away. And that's the summary of what a Samaritan is. A Jewish person who has been completely from that united northern Israel, an Israelite who now is worshiping other gods. Messed up culture, messed up religion. You don't want to go near Samaritans. But verse 4 says Jesus had to go through Samaria. He didn't. He could have gone around it. And he did that back in John chapter 2. He took the other route. So had to can't mean it was the only way. Jesus had to go through Samaria means something else for John. Had to means it's a divine requirement. It means that Jesus had to go because he had a divine appointment. He had to go through Samaria because he was coming for this divine appointment we read here. He had to go because he had to go to that well at noon and meet this particular woman. That's why he had to go. Jesus had a divine appointment. Jesus came to where she was. He comes waits for her at the well, and then he crosses the cultural divide when he sees her in verse 7 when he says, give me a drink. And what follows from this is not only now has he come to her, but now we begin with a conviction. Now Jesus enters into this moment when he's going to convict her of everything that is needful within her. You see, Jesus' simple request, give me a drink, sparks a discussion that quickly demonstrates this woman's need. She, first of all, rejects his request, verse nine. She says, uh, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus then hints at a gift that he wants to give her. In verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you Living water. This moves to her being offended. She doesn't understand what he's talking about. And she says, Sir, you have no buckets and the well is deep. Idiots. And do you think you're better than our father Jacob who built us this well? This is our territory, buddy. Don't you come here and start saying you got better water than we, we got in this well. She's totally offended. But then Jesus turns it all around in verse 13, and she's captured. He says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, something shifts in her when Jesus says these words. He he, he connects with something deep within her, And instead of a snide remark next, instead of some kind of rebuttal, verse 15 shows that she's been convicted. She says, sir, give me this water so that I do not have to be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now at first when you hear this, you think that she's just excited about the fact that, wow, if I get this spring of living water, I don't have to carry my bucket anymore. I don't have to come here and haul water. But that's not really what she's getting at. You see, all I think hinges on this word here in verse 15. It's not just about not being thirsty, that something in what Jesus has offered her connects deep within her brokenness. And she says, sir, would you give me this water? Oh, that I didn't have to come here anymore. Here. The the here is the well. You see, we realize as we look at the text, it's a strange time of day for the woman to be at the well. We're told in verse 5 that it's the sixth hour, which means it's noon, which means it's hot, it's the heat of the day. Women don't draw water at noon. They draw it in the morning or most often in the evening when it's cool. But the well is the center of the community, the center of the town. Why is this woman coming at noon to draw water? Well, as we read the rest of the text, we're going to find out. She comes here at noon so she doesn't have to face the other women. She comes here at noon because of her shame, because of her brokenness, She can't go in the morning or the evening and draw water with the other women because of the brokenness and the shame that is on display in her life. She comes at the time of day when no one will be there. And in that moment, she says to Jesus, oh, that you could give me that gift so that I don't have to come here. Do you hear the pain in her voice when she says here? Here, this place of humiliation. All my sin on display for this community. But you see, Jesus doesn't stop convicting her. At this point, you think, whoa, Jesus might back off a bit, hit a tender spot. No, Jesus just plows right for it. He's going to get further convicting here, and he's doing it out of mercy. Verse 16, he grabs that word here, and he says, okay, let's talk about here. He says, go get your husband and bring him here. Go get your husband and bring him here. Her response in verse 17 is very carefully worded. She says, I have no husband. Jesus responds, don't hear these words as compliment. Jesus is saying, wow, you're a master at twisting half-truths. He says in verse 17, you are right, correct, precise in saying you have no husband. For you have had past tense, Five husbands, and the one you have now, present tense, is not your husband. What you have said is true, accurate, precise, and she's undone. I mean, you gotta ask yourself if Jesus knew this, I mean, obviously he knows her. He's never met her before, but he knows this about her life. Why would he ask her? Why would he poke at that? Why would he bring that out? mean it's not very compassionate isn't it i mean you think it's a bit harsh is he kind of rubbing her face in it no what jesus is doing is being merciful because friends as hard as it is to hear being convicted of our sin being convicted of our need is a mercy from god Because as God convicts us of our sin and convicts us of our brokenness, convicts us of our need, then we are ready to receive the healing and the gift he has for us. But until we recognize our brokenness, until we recognize our need, we are in enormous eternal struggle and peril. Jesus in mercy is pointing out her sin. I mean, think of Psalm 139. Psalm 139, which says these powerful words, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. What God is doing is showing us, convicting us of our brokenness, and Jesus is doing this here. For this woman, she's being convicted particularly about her relationship history. All of us have different baggage we carry. This woman's is her particular relationship history. She's craving something, and she's clearly not finding satisfaction. We're not made for serial relationships. But she's got a need, she's got a hole, and she's trying to fill it. As the great philosopher Adam Sandler once wrote (laughs) in the classic film, The Wedding Singer, where Sammy, the philandering moron, says finally in total surrender, I'm not happy. I'm miserable. All I really want is someone to hold me and tell me that everything is going to be all right. we are cramming into what is a God-sized vacancy in our hearts. Sex, money, jobs, well-balanced children, fill in the blank. This is what will make me feel complete. But the problem is we cannot satisfy a vacancy that only God can fill. As Augustine said, "Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they find the rest in thee. Jesus convicts her, and he convicts us to point us to what we are truly longing for. Some of you have heard the quote from G.K. Chesterton, who wrote the words, he says, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Father Raymond D'Souza, a Canadian priest and journalist, wrote these words a few years ago which I just found so captivating, taking Chesterton's brothel, looking for God, quote, he said, man's heart desires that which endures, like our collect says today. Man's heart desires that which endures, but when he denies himself enduring things, he turns instead to more intense experiences of passing things. It is a fictitious, false eternity. But man demands eternity, whether authentic or counterfeits. The heart of man desires true love, something good that will last. If he gives up on that or hardens his heart against that possibility, he teaches himself to settle for counterfeit love and makes do with superficial things that pass away. Not every man ends up at the brothel door, but every man knows the steps in that direction." And it's not only the men outside the brothel who are looking for God, so too the women inside who desire that someone may come who might sacrifice not his money but himself, not to possess but to serve. But having given up on being served, these women settle for services rendered. We are longing for that which endures. We are longing for eternity, we are longing for God. Jesus convicts us of our sin to mercifully show us that. For her, it was her relationship history. What is it for you? What is it for me that we're trying to stuff in that vacancy? Her response in verse 19 is surrender. She says, sir, I see that you're a prophet. In other words, everything you said is true. She's undone before him. As Bishop Tom Wright says, he says, we don't know whether she was equally sinned against as sinning. We don't know what emotional traumas in her background may have made it harder and harder for her to form lasting emotional bonds. But she knew her life was in a mess, and she knew that Jesus knew. So what's next? Jesus has come for this divine appointment. He's convicted her of her need. And next, he courts her, courts her for marriage. See, verse 20. He says, she says, she tries to change the subject. She says, um, okay, so our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She totally tries to steer the conversation in a new direction. And Jesus brilliantly steers it right back to where he wants it. He says, you want to talk about worship? We'll talk about worship. It's all summed up in verse 23 when he says this to this broken woman, this Samaritan broken woman. He says, the hour is coming, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, what Jesus does is he redirects this back to this place of intimacy. He says, do you know what the Father wants? He wants you. He wants you in a worshiping relationship with him. Worship is the language of intimacy, praising, loving, loving, beholding God's glory, the, the Father's seeking you to worship him. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's really courting her. He's inviting her into pure and true and lasting intimacy. I love that word courting. I want to resurrect the term courting in our culture because courting implies intentionality and courting implies there's sort of a discernment about marriage, right? Sort of the opposite of the hookup culture, courting. I'm waiting for that first boy to come to our house who wants to court one of my daughters. I haven't quite decided yet whether I'll be cleaning a gun or doing a Bible study. If I could do both at the same time, he and I would have a very thorough conversation about courting my daughters. But see, Jesus here is in fact courting her. He's inviting her to intimacy. See that whole living water thing at the beginning was really a language of let my life come into you. Let me give you what is eternal and what you're really hungering for. One of the greatest metaphors in the Bible for our relationship with God is marriage. We see it again and again. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is his bride. I and mean, if you can get your head around this, the message of the Bible again and again is saying, ultimately, God wants to marry you. It's a metaphor, but it's a good one. That level of commitment, that level of, of lasting, etern- Jesus will never, ever walk out on his bride. That's the commitment of a relationship he wants with you and with me. And Jesus wants that with this woman. You see... The reason we read Genesis 24, this en- weird engagement story between uh, Isaac and Rebekah, that's what that whole story is about, about Isaac getting a wife. And the servant goes off to find this, this, this perfect bride for him. And the whole thing is, is an engagement story. But did you hear the similarities? Jesus knows the similarities. Jesus is in fact, I think, replaying Genesis 24 at this well. There, there's, there's the similarities. look at the similarities. They're at a well. There's reference to springs of water. In both cases, there's a person asking for a drink. Jesus is purposely retelling this engagement story. But do you know what's amazing, friends? is we see the similarities, but there's differences, too, between these two stories. And the grace is in the differences. The grace is found in what's different. See, though it's similar that there's a well and there's springs of water and asking for a drink, Jesus literally replaying this engagement story here at this well. The difference is, Rebecca was not an outsider. Rebecca was drawing water in the evening because she had no shame to hide. And Rebecca was sexually pure. Rebecca was the perfect bride-to-be. But when Jesus retells this story, he does it with the Samaritan woman who is not the perfect bride-to-be. And yet he says to her, this imperfect bride-to-be, I want to marry you. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me all of you who are so broken and I will give you rest. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, yet broken, yet Samaritan women sitting at that well, Christ died for us. You see, this story is an engagement story. Jesus is doing this on purpose. He's retelling this engagement story, but he's doing it with this woman And what's her response? Her response is verse 25. She says, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, what you've just said is too good to be true. I'll have to wait for the Messiah to come to confirm what you're offering me. God's anointed servant himself will have to show up to confirm what you just told me. It's amazing what you're offering me, but it can't be true. It's too good to be true. You know who I am. I just told you. You told me about who I am. This cannot be true. God's Messiah himself would have to show up. God himself would have to be here to make me believe that this is really true of me. Oh, the glory of verse 26. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. God would have to show up to make sure. God has shown up. I'm right in front of you. And I'm asking for you to marry me. What's her response to the proposal? I love it. Verse 28, we read that, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Do you know the cool thing there? It's not just that she goes into town to tell everyone about him. She becomes an evangelist. But you know what I love is she leaves the bucket there. What did he say back at the beginning? He said, if I give you a drink, if I give you the gift I want to give you, you don't need to come back to this well anymore because the spring of living water will be living in you. And to show that she has fully received it, this woman leaves her bucket there. I don't need my bucket anymore because I've got living water in me because Jesus asked to marry me And I said, yes. How does God break through to people? He comes to us. He makes divine appointments in our lives. He convicts us. Shows us what's wrong and what we really need. But then he courts us. He woos us. Marry me. That friend of mine, my best friend in high school, Jay, who died in that scuba diving accident, completely unchurched, and he started trying out church in our sophomore year. After that year of Jay trying out church, he told me a pagan, an atheist still, words that I will never forget because they changed me. He said to me, I've gotten to know Jesus for the past year. I guess you could say we've been dating Now I want to get married. He said that. And then Jay was baptized in the Pacific Ocean. And less than a year later, he died in that same ocean. But in that year between his baptism and his death in that same ocean, Jay is the one who introduced me to his groom, Jesus. Jay was reached by God. And through him, God reached me. And he and I will be reunited because there is a great wedding supper that is coming where all of the bride is gathered that we may feast with the bridegroom who has paid the price for us all. God wants to marry you. Will you say yes? Say yes afresh today. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.